Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 3. It is a delight to bring back to the show my good friend Josh Hammer. He is the editor at the Newsweek Opinion section, the host of his own podcast, The Josh Hammer Show. Many of you uh, know he was uh, kind and uh, very decent to me in having me on his podcast this week and really appreciated it. We had a great discussion, and I thought I would turn uh, the tables around, or at least the microphones, and uh, raise some of the questions uh, he asked of me um, with him. He, um, he, he, he should be considered as part of our um, part of our conservative origin story series. I've talked to a lot of uh, public intellectuals who consider themselves conservatives, how they became that way, what they view, uh, how they view the movement. And uh, few are as important as Josh Hammer. So, Josh, welcome back to the Airways of Phoenix, and thanks for having me on, and thanks for being with us today. Two times in one week. I know. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's better, better than most weeks. I'm looking forward to this very much. People are going to talk, or at least we're going to talk. <laughs> um, yeah, let me do that. I have done a series of uh, origin stories with public intellectuals in the uh, conservative constellation, Josh. How they came to be conservative. Some were born that way, some converted, uh, some were apolitical. Um, how did you come to, and when did you realize you were what we would broadly define or call, uh, as we do ourselves, conservatives? You know, I think for me, a lot of people have these kind of later in life conversions, mm-hmm. um, whether it's in college or graduate school or adulthood when children enter the picture. You know, I, I mean, I guess I was apolitical by definition for the very early years of my life, but I, I have never been on the left. I, I, I have been on the right for essentially the entire time since I started being aware of politics and public policy. And I'll tell you exactly what my first seminal moment was. Yeah. So, Seth, I live in Florida now, but I grew up in the New York area. And specifically, I grew up in a smaller suburban town called Sleepy Hollow, New York, which is roughly 25 miles straight up the Hudson River from New York City. And all that is to say that when I was in the seventh grade, when 9-11 happened, so September 11, 2001, you could physically see the smoke from the towers, Mm -hmm. just like looking down the river. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of my grand awakening into the gravitas of what we were dealing with and just kind of politics in general. And frankly, I, I guess by definition, if I do some quick math here, I was 12 and a half years old at the time. And that's plenty old enough to realize when you see the images, the smoke. You know, I, I knew people whose parents, whose family worked in the Twin Towers. So that was plenty enough of a sobering experience to recognize that there is no such thing as utopia, that there is good and there is bad, as the Bible teaches us very clearly as well. There is good and there is evil, and the only way to actually crush evil is through good. So I think once you kind of soberly have these utopian fantasies wiped away, you kind of by definition are a conservative. And, you know, I I, I mean, I'm I'm not going to say that I was like an Edmund Burke scholar at the age of 12. God, no. Um, (laughs) But, you know, from there, it was kind of just a slow, steady progression. I guess essentially it's where I, I am now and... I guess, where I will continue to go. So for me, it really did kind of start, honestly, on 9-11. 9-11, a lot of us thought, would have been a pivotal moment in intellectual circles or learned societies. We had been suffering through decades and decades, if it's fair to say, of this kind of post or post-postmodern 
thinking that good and evil were kind of constructs, uh, that uh, it was too difficult a thing to say, if not perhaps even too jingoistic a thing to say. Uh, we were in the mode of a lot of multiculturalism. We were in the mode of thinking, a lot of us, not me, not you, but a lot of uh, academia and, and intellectual writing was in the mode of thinking that we shouldn't judge other societies, we shouldn't judge other uh, belief systems, uh, that judgmental was really one of the worst crimes uh, one could be accused of. And we thought 9-11 might have been a changing uh, or a pivotal point because people could see directly the um, the hand and face of evil as they could see the hand and face of good. Um, and it and, and it, it had a certain effect of uniting the country for a very, very short period. People thought it might unite the country for a long time. It lasted about two months. Um, and I wonder if any of that helped shape your thinking as you were growing older and thinking about it. I mean, I don't think you were wrestling with notions of good and evil uh, at age 12 as much as you would later in life. But I wonder if any of that was a touchstone for some of that thinking in your worldview. You kind of how I developed a little more than I guess in middle school and high school. So, you know, I mean, by the time that I was a senior in high school, so I graduated high school in 2007. So I remember taking AP U.S. Um, actually, no, no, it was not. It was not. It was AP government, not AP U.S. history. I took that my junior year. Yeah. So I was taking AP government my senior year. And, you know, I, I routinely would get into one versus 25 debates. I mean, you know, I was an extremely rare kind of outspoken right of center person in my class and I have never really had any fear about kind of projecting my arguments and trying to kind of take on a group larger than me. But at the time, you know, a lot of these debates that were happening and I was also editor in chief of my high school newspaper and I was kind of a conservative columnist for uh, well I I I don't know if you call columnists, but I, I I would partake in these kind of points, counterpoint theories um, and I wrote the right of center perspective. But a lot of these debates around that time were foreign, po foreign policy related, of course. They were yeah, Iraq, right. Afghanistan. Right. And, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'll be the first to admit that around that time, I, I was very much, I didn't know any better. I, I think a lot of us didn't know any better. I was very much kind of a stereotypical kind of gun-toting neoconservative. Mm -hmm. And I say that because as the disasters of these failed foreign interventions just became clearer and clearer, just, just empirically speaking, based mm -hmm. on what we saw happen in the wastelands of Afghanistan and Anbar Al-Anbar province in Iraq and, and so forth there. You know, I, I, I took those, those lessons of these failures of these regime change, nation-building crusades very, very seriously, mm -hmm. because those are also kind of my incipients, my initial forays into the movement. So, you know, you know uh, as the reality of the bipartisan foreign policy establishment, nation-building, quixotic crusades became clearer and clearer as I got older. I, I, I think I started to really kind of question so much of what I first advocated on. It's kind of ironic, actually. I, I obviously have become a, you know, a, a professional conservative, for mm -hmm. lack of a better term now. But the very first issues on which I was conservative on, I've, I'm not going to say I've done a 180. That would be overstating it. But I think that much of kind of what I and others were saying foreign policy-wise around that time has certainly just been proven empirically false over time. 
When we talked last, when we were talking on your podcast, we're talking with Josh Hammer, editor of the Josh Hammer, uh, producer and uh, and uh, and host of the Josh Hammer Show, and editor of Newsweek Opinion Section. When we were talking, we were talking about different strands for a little while, about different strands of conservatism. I think it's a one big Venn diagram, but I wonder how you see it. You you are most associated with, and correct me, and I don't mean to be unfair. You are most associated with the the terminology of national conservatism or NatCon for short. Feel free to correct, but tell me a little bit about that or the strand that you would most affiliate with right now. Yeah, I think intellectually I'm kind of this hybrid of national conservatism and Claremontism, if you will. It's it's funny. I I have a lot of friends um, who I think would identify as some sort of hybrid of these two camps as well there. So, you know, the national conservatism phenomenon, which is, at least in that explicit terminology, is a fairly recent thing. It's primarily identified with the Israeli political theorist Yaram Hazoni, who's um, a very good personal friend of mine. And uh, as a matter of kind of how the terminology rose, a lot of it is just a backlash over 30, 40 years of globalism and neoliberalism, mm-hmm. and in primarily speaking in both economics and foreign policy. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely a pushback against kind of the hubris of neoconservative foreign policy, nation building, and regime change crusade, but it's also kind of a backlash against kind of the the, the so-called Washington consensus of, quote-unquote, free, fair trade for everyone across the globe. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is very much a backlash against this idea that here, there, and everywhere we should prioritize lowest prices for consumers, you know, at the expense of production, at the expense of resilience, of supply chains, things of that nature there. And it's also, slightly more philosophically, it's also, I think, a backlash against the idea of universal abstraction and the ease with, with which we can apply those universal abstractions all across the globe. So, you know, the the fundamental basis for kind of the the neoconservative foreign policy argument, if we, if we kind of want to use that as but one example sure. there, the basic argument is that, you know, with like a citation to the Declaration of Independence, we are all endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. Therefore, the way that kind of the Taliban acts in Afghanistan violates the rights. And then there's one more logical step, which is, you know, which, which would have been rebutted by the great John Quincy Adams in, in his famous Monsters to Destroy speech of 1821. But the next logical step is that then is therefore America's uh, need to go ahead and secure these rights even outside of our ter- outside of our territory. Let me let me stop you and, right there, just because of the commercial break we're bumping up against, and I don't want to cut off the line of thought. We'll pick it up when we come right back. My guest is Josh Hammer. He is the editor at Newsweek Opinion and the host of the Josh Hammer Show. Newsweek.com is the website for Newsweek, of course. Josh Hammer is our guest. He is the editor of the opinion section there. He has done a tremendous job with it. He is also the host of his own podcast, available, obviously, through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and also on the web, The Josh Hammer Show. And um, we're talking about his worldview, and we'll get into a couple issues 
more specifically in just a moment. Josh, right before the break, you were you were talking about the national conservative or NatCon view that kind of deals with trade and foreign policy. And while we take our declaration of independence as seriously as we do with the notion that it does speak to all men, we also have to temper it or follow through a couple extra steps along the way in in figuring out what the prudent part of its exercise is. Feel free to continue the line of thought you were going down. Right, exactly. So if you take this, I, I alluded to it just a minute or so ago, but if you, if you take seriously this 1821 speech that then Secretary of State John Quincy Adams gave, and, you know, our, our fellow Claremonster said the late great Angela Cotevilla was extremely fond of quoting this particular speech, where he, where he said that America does not go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. And, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, so I don't have it memorized verbatim, but the, but the key line, the very key line, is he says that America is the well-wisher of liberty for the whole world, right. but she is the guarantor of it only for her own. Right. So th- that is kind of this NatCon kind of national interest, slightly more sober response to the excesses of not just neoconservatism, but also liberal interventionism, the likes of which led Samantha Power and, and Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. to start that regime change war in, in Libya in 2011 that is very much still roiling today. Mm-hmm. And then, and then uh, globally speaking, when it comes to kind of economics, which I teased earlier as well, I think a lot of the NATCON movement, which probably has strong overlap actually with kind of Claremontism, given kind of Abraham Lincoln's own thoughts on trade and manufacturing, given that Henry Clay, of all people, was actually Abraham Lincoln's boyhood hero. Mm-hmm. But I think kind of the NATCON approach to trade, you know, it, it looks a lot like fairer trade rather than free trade absolutism. Basically, the argument is that a country to be self-sustaining has to actually make some stuff, and that there is something to be said for hard physical labor, hard physical production. We have to be able to manufacture. It's very much what what Alexander Hamilton said Mm -hmm. in his 1791 report on the manufacturers. Yes, right. I don't know if they teach it anymore. (laughs) National conservatism, NatCons, nationalism. Um, it brings up a certain allergy or allergic reaction uh, in some precincts of the conservative movement in the Republican Party, particularly fearful of certain ethnic overtones. Worth pointing out, as you did, it, its intellectual godfather is a man named Yoram Hazoni from Israel. Its national uh, intellectual leader is a man named Josh Hammer, you from New York and Florida. But what would you say about this allergy to the notion of nationalism uh, that, that, to put it no, no, no lower, does freak some people out? Right. So, I mean, so much of this has been kind of co-opted by the horrors of the 20th century. Yeah. And what, what, you know, traditionally speaking, what they teach in civics classes in high school is certainly that World War One, this kind of standard place, civics, European history, they teach that World War I was very much the result of kind of nationalism run amok. And sometimes people will cite World War II and the Nazis being an example of nationalism run amok. So some of this fundamentally does get boiled down, for better or for worse, to a semantic dispute. You know, I would encourage the listeners of this program to check out uh, Dr. Hazoni's 2018 book called The Virtue of Nationalism, mm-hmm. where he tries to kind of define at least one possible paradigm for distinguishing between nationalism and imperialism. But there is absolutely nothing wrong with prioritizing your own nation state, with prioritizing your own people. 
there, there is fundamentally nothing wrong with that. And the American founders would have definitely agreed with that sentiment. You know, James Madison, of all people, had this one quote. I can't quite remember the exact quote verbatim, but he was speaking about the criteria that the then-fledgling republic would need to see in prospective immigrants to grant them uh, ultimately citizenship when they got here. And Madison reads like a strong immigration restrictionist, honestly. He, mm-hmm. he basically says that, you know, the immigrant has to have a, a, a great skill in a particular field mm-hmm. that's vitally important for X, Y, Z reasons, and then maybe we'll kind of let him stay. And uh, there's just nothing wrong with that, I, I guess, is my, is, my, is my basic argument. I mean, John Quincy Adams, again, said the same thing in the 1821 speech, that you are looking after yourself to guarantee liberty, but you are only going to wish them well unto the world. George Washington himself, of course, right. in his farewell address famously kind of warned America, his progeny, subsequent generations. George Washington famously said, beware of foreign entanglements, yep. beware of foreign alliances. And that was kind of standard right of center, to the extent right of center even meant anything. That was kind of standard right of center thinking on these matters, at least until you know Woodrow Wilson, who was very far from a conservative. But you know Wilson's entry into World War One kind of opened up the can of worms for interventionism in general, and only really towards the latter part of the 20th century did the, the Republican Party kind of latch onto some of these ideas here. So you know part of the Natcon argument is just trying to kind of recover. A much kind of older strands of argument. There's, mm-hmm. there's, def- there's definitely some overlaps between national conservatism and, and the old paleocons. Mm-hmm. They are not a perfect fit for each other. Mm-hmm. There, there are some differences there. But uh, one thing to, to, em- to emphasize is any tint of race is utterly anathema to everything that the national conservative movement stands for. There was actually a statement of principles that the NATCOM movement put out last summer. I think it was last July. I, I was happy to sign on to it myself. And the statement just makes extremely clear that race has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with the NATCOM conception of the nation state. The nation state, rather, is uh, in this form, is, is predicated upon kind of a shared history, shared culture, shared traits, shared Republican habits of mind, and so forth. But... The notion that race has anything to do with it is is vile and is wholly rejected by the national conservatives. Whenever I encounter the question as I posed it to you, um, I usually will point people to someone who is identified, I hope, with the conservative movement, certainly with the Republican Party, as perhaps the first most widely known pluralistic uh, leader of it, Abraham Lincoln. And I do not know, I simply do not know, how one can be opposed to nationalism and read the Gettysburg Address favorably at the same time. It is a 248-word letter speech, beautiful as it is, on why nationalism is uh, important, why nationalism matters, and that you can care about this nation, and it's for a good and noble cause. Um, and and so I, I am really glad to hear how you put it. It's it's a it's a it's a much better explanation than my short quip. But it uh, it usually serves to at least silence people or get them to start thinking about it. What is it Abraham Lincoln was trying to keep and preserve here? What was it he was talking about that people fought for so that they wouldn't uh, have died in vain. Let me take one more, uh, or at least another quick uh, commercial break with Josh Hammer here. want to ask him a little bit 
about books he recommends or would recommend, either important to his thinking as he was developing his worldview, or books he would recommend that parents or grandparents give to young readers who are curious or interested in conservatism. Books are authors they should read. Of course, you should always read Josh Hammer and listen to him. You can listen to him at the Josh Hammer Show, his podcast. You can read him. He's syndicated, but also at Newsweek.com. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Uh, privileged to have Josh Hammer with us. He is the editor at Newsweek Opinion, Newsweek.com. You can uh, hear his uh, very popular podcast, The Josh Hammer Show, Apple Podcasts. You can get it on the web through Newsweek, uh, and you can get it through Spotify. I should mention his very active Twitter feed as well, at Josh underscore Hammer, H-A-M-M-E-R. Josh, books, authors, uh, either that were crucially important, critically important to you or that you recommend parents or grandparents give to young uh, aspiring minds in politics or public policy? So, I mean, you could do a lot worse if we're talking here about kind of the canon of conservatism. You could do a lot worse than starting with Burke himself. Okay. I mean, Emin I, I Burke's various writings on this certainly have been deeply impactful on, on the way that I think of what it means to be on the right in general, what it means to be a conservative. I mean, you know, Seth, on our conversation earlier this week, you and I kind of uh, had a nice little talk about whether the term conservative is actually even even relevant right. at this point. But right. it's important to start with Burke, uh, certainly uh, his reflections on the revolution in France, his appeal from an old wig to a new wig. Um, I, I think you could do a lot worse to start with Burke. Russell Kirk is definitely one of my favorite 20th century thinkers. He was considered probably the slightly more uh, traditionalist mm-hmm. uh, of kind of uh, that 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 founding post-war generation of of conservatives mm-hmm. uh, as between as between Kirk and Buckley. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know I, everything that Russell Kirk has written and and, and produced, I, you know I would I would strongly recommend that. For some slightly more modern examples, you know I, I already gave a, a plug to Joram uh, Pazoni's Virtue of Nationalism. He has, he, has a, he has a newer book called Just Conservatism, A Rediscovery that came out last year. Definitely would encourage that as well. And, you know, I, when it comes to kind of the the economic pieces here, you know, I'm a huge fan of what Orrin Cass of, of, of American Compass mm-hmm. has been putting out for the past, you know, half decade, decade or so. Uh, he had a book called The Once and Future Worker, which I thought it was a great read. Funny enough, actually, when I had Orrin on my podcast last year, he actually said he wasn't sure how much of the book he would still agree with. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> All right. It might have been remaindered in his own mind. Okay. <laughs> which I found quite humorous. You're but defending I, I, his honor more than he, uh, which is more than he could say for himself. I got you. Okay. All right. Definitely. Um, and, you know, look, from the from, from the Claremont world, I mean, I, you've got to familiarize yourself with Harry Jaffa. I think, I, I think you'd be, I think you'd be a fool to try and understand kind of the American founding or the statesmanship of Abraham Lincoln without at least exposing yourself to Harry Jaffa. So, you know, I mean, those are just like a few kind of quick examples there. Um, But look, there's so so much out there. Um, But I I guess if you're you're going to start with kind of the bare bones basics, that's probably as decent a place as ever. I guess one other other book that I'll make a plug for – um, speaking of Claremont, I, I thought Chris Caldwell's book, Age of Entitlement, mm-hmm. about kind of the pernicious ramifications of yep. the Civil Rights Act and kind of the, the DEI 
DEI diversity yep. regime that we still live with today. Yeah. That was a very powerful post that came out just a couple of years ago as well. How stands the conservative movement right now, generally speaking? How stands the conservative movement and maybe how stands uh, its best uh, political vehicle, the Republican Party? Well, they might know, look, be two different questions. Yeah. I, I, and well, they might be the same. I'm not sure myself. I'm not either, actually. Um, well, you know, look, Republicans won the national popular vote in this past midterm election, which is something that a lot of people tend to forget because there was all this talk, including from myself, of the quote unquote red wave that was going to sweep the country, including Arizona, among other states there. And then the red wave, of course, did not ultimately materialize. But it is important to at least recognize that nationally speaking, Republicans won the national popular vote, which has been relatively rare in elections. You know, Republicans haven't won a ton of national popular votes in general of late. You know, I'll be honest with you, as much as I enjoy thoroughly, as much as I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy uh, genuinely these kind of more abstract conversations about kind of conservatism and, and, and Burke and Lincoln, all of that. I do worry that we sometimes kind of miss the forest for the trees just a little bit here. Hold that. Hold because, that right there. That that I, I think I have an idea where you're going, and I'm looking forward to it. But this was a short segment, and the next one will give you a, a, a plenty of time to un, unfold it. Josh Hammer is our guest, editor at Newsweek Opinion, Newsweek.com. He is the host of his own podcast, The Josh Hammer Show, tremendously uh, valuable contribution to uh, our intellectual thinking and, of course, dialogue and rhetoric. You can follow him on Twitter at Josh underscore Hammer, H-A-M-M-E-R. He and I will be right back. Josh Hammer is our guest. I was asking him how stands the conservative movement. Remember in Mary Poppins, I think the question is, how stands England tonight? How stands the conservative movement? And Josh, you were just about to get into um, a discussion about how we shouldn't miss uh, forests for concentrations on trees. And sorry, we had to take a quick commercial break, but pick it up wherever you would like to there. No, no, of course. And I guess what I mean by that, Seth, is there are so many tangible things, for lack of a better term, that are happening in the United States right now that are harmful trends. Uh, one issue that you and I discussed in our podcast, you have been admirably outspoken about for decades, is our drug overdose crisis. There is a glaring, glaring crisis at the United States southern border, the likes of which we have not seen probably in the history of the entire country. Obviously, all the wokeism, the critical race theory, the DEI, we are literally teaching children to hate themselves, hate their country, to hate their fellow classmates. To hate the the sex they were born with. Exactly. And that's to say nothing, of course, of these past few years of just absolute kind of COVID idiocy when yeah. it comes to kind of depriving yeah. children yeah. Uh, of the real learning mm-hmm. and the masks and everything. Mm-hmm. So th- th- there's so much wrong here that sometimes I do worry a little bit about what Patrick Deneen, I think, has, has, has kind of pejoratively labeled foundersism, which ah. is kind of this, mm-hmm. this, this overly esoteric kind mm-hmm. of, kind of uh, uh, worship uh, of a certain generation as opposed to kind of focusing on kind of how we can actually get in power. That's kind of crass electoral politics 
and then use power to solve the problem. Has anyone done it better, though? Has anyone done it better than what your recipe is than your governor? It seems to me he has taken a complete, almost a complete worldview and deployed public policy on almost everything you just mentioned. He can't do the border much, but he's done something about the border and he brought it to the public's attention outside of Florida. Is anyone done it better? Isn't he the kind of the touchstone of what you're talking about? I, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, my gosh, check, 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 box checked. Governor DeSantis, maybe I'm overstating it. I, I don't think you are. I think that Governor DeSantis here in the state of Florida, where I live, is the paradigmatic so-called new right politician. Okay. Um, I think I, I think he gets this probably better than anyone on our side in the entire country. Yeah, I do too. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's possible that kind of a Josh Hawley is more of like a, a, um, a lifelong kind of nationalist intellect. Yeah, I yeah, I can see it from a different – yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. But DeSantis totally, totally gets it in a way that very few others seem to do. And if you look at kind of the, the Walt Disney Company spat that he had last year, what he did there was he prudentially wielded power mm-hmm. to protect protect parental rights at the expense of a woke corporation that was intruding upon those rights. I mean, you know, if, if, if I could formulate kind of what the, what the so-called new right playbook is, sure. I, I – I, I could. Do, I, I really couldn't do any better than pointing to that particular decision. So, I he he, he gets it in many ways. He has provided the framework. He has provided the examples, and um, we'll see. Obviously, ultimately, what he decides to do for twenty twenty four. I I predict he probably will run, and he, I, I'm pretty optimistic. About he showed that. something else, you know, Josh. I don't know exactly how to put this. Maybe you can frame it better than I can. But I have for years. Um, Churchill says uh, Churchill has a line. It's it's awfully hard to be a leader with your ear to the ground. Who can look up to you? And there's this thing in a lot of Republican um, governors, senators, congressmen, elected officials, where they they tend to kind of not want to touch those. I don't know. Might you call them cultural issues? They might want not to touch these issues of value, these issues that deal with race, these issues that deal with what we might call gender ideology, these issues that might that might anger the New York Times, uh, just if I can use an example. And he showed that if you know what you're talking about and you go in prepared and you're ready for it, not only can you, not only can you win, my God, you can increase your voting base by 18 percentage points. He's shown that backbone can be rewarded, too, that there is a thirst for it and it will be rewarded. Maybe that's too crude a way to put it. But I was hoping one of the things that we might draw from DeSantis's lesson is a lesson he's teaching to other Republicans, perhaps other Republican governors. You know, it's funny. If you go back to the infamous RNC so-called autopsy yeah. after the right. Ryan right. Right. in 2012, right. they said, oh, soften up on your rhetoric about immigration, soften right. up on your rhetoric about same-sex marriage or whatever. Just focus on those economic issues. And Trump basically does the literal opposite yep. four years later. Right. He runs he runs to the populist center on economics and goes all in on the so-called culture war, and he wins. Unlike the Romney ticket of four years prior, he breaks through that infamous blue wall there in, in the Rust Belt, where Republicans are now suddenly competitive again, and where states like Ohio, which are once purple, are now bright red. And, you know, DeSantis is a, is a brilliant example as to kind of how fighting the culture war can be rewarded Politically, Glenn Youngkin as well in Virginia. I mean, Glenn Youngkin would not have won that race. There's no world in which he would have run that race 
had he not embraced critical race theory, parental rights, education as as major, major issues there in Loudoun County and the other Washington, D.C. suburbs and exurbs. So time and again, we see kind of just this disconnect, frankly, between the Republican Party's kind of K Street adjacent consultant class who who are disproportionately secular, who's who are, you know who, are, who tend to lobby for capital gains tax cuts and carried interest loopholes and all these various other kind of inside baseball kind of quirky supply side economics stuff. There's just a massive disconnect between that and what the median Republican voter actually wants. Mm-hmm. What the median Republican voter wants is cultural sanity and national stability. Mm-hmm. We want like we want border secure, inflation under control, crime reduced. And, you know, exactly what the top marginal tax rate is going to be or what the corporate tax rate or, or whatever is going to be. You know, I mean, like uh, all of people, lower taxes are, of course, better. But these are not necessarily the, the foremost issues of our time. They're not what I and, call the durables. I think people care about the durables. What kind of society are they going to raise their children in is, I think, probably in the back of everyone's mind. Yeah, Glenn Youngkin and I think and I think Ron DeSantis understood that better than anyone else. I, th- I think that's exactly right. And, you know, look, when it, when it comes to stability, durability, um, you know, uh, again, the fight against Disney is, is deeply illustrative. So, yep. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a certain strand, I think, of Republicans. <laughs> a company that it. claims to be in the business of entertaining children, ironically enough. Yeah, right. Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. No, deeply, yeah. deeply yeah. ironically. Yeah. But, but there's a certain kind of Republican who kind of comes from, like, the Chamber of Commerce wing of the party who just sees a politician speaking ill of, let alone taking genuine political action to, to rein in a corporate power. And that, that certain type of Republican will just blanch and will say, you know, what are you, what are you doing? You've committed a cardinal sin. But again, you know, Irving Kristol, who I, from my perspective was a wonderful intellectual, uh, he, he famously argued two cheers for capitalism. Yeah, not, not three, three but right. not three, but right. two cheers right. for capitalism. Right. And, you know, it, it is entirely possible. In fact, it is easily and eminently foreseeable. And we've seen it happen many times that when profoundly unregulated private enterprise is not anchored to something or does not have proper policy or legal guardrails in, in place to channel that energy, and then this whole thing can go off the rail. And the one example that I like to give to kind of just drive this point home for those who might otherwise shrug their shoulders at what I'm saying here is I like to say, think about the pornography industry and gross domestic product. So as far as measuring a country's GDP, you know, it all counts. So if if the San Fernando Valley in Southern California is tripling or or quadrupling its output of pornographic films, that's going to directly benefit the United States' GDP as has been customarily measured. Mm -hmm. Is is there any argument, though, that that tripling or quadrupling (laughs) is a good thing, that it actually helps the national common wheel on the answer the question answers itself. Yep. Yeah. Well done, Josh. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this. And I really want to thank you uh, for what you're doing, uh, what you have uh, done with Newsweek, what you have done with the airwaves, what you are doing in the conservative movement. There's an expression you will understand. Yasher Koach, for the rest of the audience that might not know it, may your strength continue to be just, Josh Hammer. Thank you, sir. Beth, anytime. This is a real treat for me as well. I hope to shout at you again soon. You betcha. God bless and Godspeed. I'm Seth Leapson. We'll be right back.
A lot of you have heard me talk about Y-Refi for a while now, and if you have questions about uh, what a great company they are and how well they fulfill their commitments to giving you great investment opportunity with great return, an investment not tied to the stock market, an investment not even tied to the Fed, they ask you to give them a call. They're happy to put you in touch with any number of their many satisfied customers from the Phoenix area. Their phone number is 888-YREFI-34, 888-YREFI-34. Think about your IRA. If you'd like your IRA to be earning strong fixed interest rates and not be dependent on the stock market or Joe Biden's economy, Y-Refi is there. You can invest with Y-Refi through an IRA or other qualified funds, and you can keep your investment, including the high fixed interest rates you earn tax-deferred. That's right. Your money can stay in your IRA. You don't have to pay taxes on the income you earn. Great, guys. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, Y, refi, the letter Y, refi. Dot com. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with uh, Josh Hammer. I have a feeling it's going to be a down payment for many more conversations about our movement and our party, not only with him, but with other guests as we are rolling up our sleeves and gearing up and hopefully pulling up our socks to start actually winning some more races and get ready for the big one next year, the Super Bowl, the presidential race, and all the discussions we've had about it today and we'll have in months to come. In the meantime, folks, thank you for your um, attention here. Thank you for giving us a little bit of your time, of your day, your ear, and your heart, your mind, and your soul. We appreciate it and you deeply. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. I am Seth Leibson, and class is dismissed. <laughs>